The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Can we pray? Father, this is a, uh, a difficult text. This is a, not a cheery text for us to read through and to study this morning. But God, you are good, and I believe that you will speak through this passage, that you will speak to our hearts, and that you will draw us closer to you today through Amos chapter 2. God, I pray that you would bless this time, that you would bless your people, that we would bless those that we know and come in contact with, and we would glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, a little. Good morning, everybody. Um, this morning, I'm going to start by reading a passage out of the Pilgrim's Progress that uh, has come to be one of my favorite books um, to just read and to reread and um, to be honest, to listen to. I've been listening to it quite regularly for the last several months, just through Audible, and um, as a devotional book, it is just phenomenal. Uh, For those that might not know, Pilgrim's Progress was written several hundred years ago. A man uh, was in jail. His name was John Bunyan, and he had a dream, and he wrote this, this story out like it was a dream and was picturing a man named Christian walking out his Christian life all the way to the celestial city, which is heaven, and and the things that Christians deal with along our spiritual walk. Um, At this point, I was reading this to our boys this week, um, and I was studying for it, and I was like, boy, it just marries up so well, and I thought this would be a great way to start. Um, At this point in the story, Christian and Hopeful have, are nearing the end of their, their journey. They can uh, they meet with these four shepherds, or these four, they're picturing pastors who are teaching them and showing them and explaining on these different mountaintops, this is what's coming before you. You need to be aware of this, or you need to take encouragement in this. Um, and at this point, they're going down from a mountaintop into a low. And so I'm going to pick up the Pilgrim's Progress on this uh, as they come into it. So it starts with, then I saw in my dream that the shepherds had them to another place in a bottom where there was a door in the side of a hill and they opened the door and they bid them to look in. They looked in, therefore, and saw that within it was very dark and smoky and they thought that they heard there the rumbling noise of a fire and a cry of some tormented And they smelt there the scent of brimstone. And then said Christian to the shepherds, what does this mean? And the shepherds told them, this is a byway to hell. A way that hypocrites go in at. Namely, 
Such as sell their birthright with Esau, such as sell their master with Judas, such as blaspheme the gospel with Alexander, and that lie and dissemble with Ananias and Sapphira his wife. Then said hopeful to the shepherds, I perceive that these had on them, every one of them, a show of Christian pilgrimage as we have now, had they not? And the shepherds said yes, and they held it a long time too. How far might they have gone on in their pilgrimage in their day, said Hopeful, since they were thus miserably so cast away. Some further and some not so far as these mountains, said the shepherds. Then the pilgrims said one to another, we have need to cry to the strong for strength. This little passage typifies very well what we're going to be going through today, and that is uh, a people who have a show of Christianity or a show of devotion or think they have a show of devotion to the Lord, yet are walking a byway to hell. They're walking a way that hypocrites go. It's a heavy little passage. It's a sweet little picture. So as we get started here, I'm just going to kind of recap. Last week, Ben was talking, giving us um, kind of an overview and a great start to the book of Amos. And the big things in the book of Amos is righteousness and justice and doing those. And righteousness is having a correct standard of behavior of right and wrong. And justice is how that standard of behavior is lived out. The expression of righteousness is in the treatment of fellow image bearers. So last week, Ben, in laying out justice and righteousness, was teaching about how Amos was calling out all of these nations surrounding Israel. Amos Amos was from the southern part of Israel. At this point in history, Israel had divided the southern kingdom called Judah, where the temple and the priesthood Um, were, and then the northern ten tribes, which is now called Israel, or was called Israel, Um, and they had set up uh, false temples. They had these, um, to try to keep people from moving south, their king Jeroboam didn't want people worshiping in the south, having a heart tied back to the south. So Amos goes from Judah and goes up into Israel And starts proclaiming all of these judgments on nations. And he's surrounding the nation of Israel. And today, it's like he's forming this great big target. And he's going to hit the bullseye right in on the nation of Israel. He's saying, this is what's going on all around you with these heathen nations. And even with Judah, who has the temple, who has the prophets, who's walking more uprightly. But today, he's going to hit the people of Israel. And he's calling out God, or he's calling out his people. God is calling out his people for their hypocrisy. Kind of the big thing that we need to see through this passage is that false worship is abhorrent, absolutely abhorrent to God. And as God's people, we need to seek him with humble and repentant hearts. So as we look at this, um, the outline for today, uh, we're going to take it, it's kind of a back and forth. Verses 6 through 8 is really what Israel is doing. So we're going to look for 6 through 8, what Israel is doing. And then 9 through 11 is what God has done or what God did. 
Verse 12 is Israel's response. And then verse 13 through 16 is what God will do and will finish up at the end with what we will need to do or what we must do. So we're going to start verse 6 through 8, looking back here, what Israel has done. So thus says the Lord, starting it off just like all the other nations. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver they, and the needy for a pair of sandals. And those, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. We're going to start with those three things God calls them out for. They sell the righteous for silver. As we're looking here and God is calling out injustice and he's calling out unrighteous behavior, he comes to this and he says, you're selling people for a a commodity. You're selling people, the second one, for a pair of sandals. These are people who God is saying are righteous and needy. These are people who maybe are trying to do good things, who are maybe trying to do a, a walk or a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem to worship, or they're, they're trying to walk uprightly according to the law, and they're being sold for silver. They're trying to honor God with their acts. But the people, the culture around them, the people of Israel are saying, no, I'm going to either, it could be they, they're turning them in, Or they're just saying, you know what, you're acting in a way that I'm going to take advantage of. I'm going to take advantage of these people of God who are are giving. Maybe they're giving of their time and they're getting silver out of them. Uh, Maybe Jeroboam had a, this is just speculation, these are just the thoughts that I had over the week. Um, Maybe Jeroboam set up a little ancient telecom like, hey, my neighbor's heading south to worship. You better better come arrest him. And oh yeah, I'll get my silver next week. Um, these different things, they're, they're selling people for commodities. And the real, the problem is they're devaluing human life. The second one really shows that. They're selling the needy for a pair of sandals. And they trample, in, trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. So if someone was poor and they had a piece of land or they had a cart or they had something of value and they really needed some money, they would try to sell it, right? That was part of what God was saying. You know, they would sell their land up until the year of Jubilee, and then their land would be restored. They would say, here, I have this piece of land, and I really need some money. And they would sell it, and they'd go, well, the, the, the culture is saying, you have no bargaining, so I'm going to give you, like, a pair of sandals. I'm going to give you, like, pennies on the dollar of what that is worth. I'm going to treat you in a way that benefits me. And that's what God is calling out in this culture. He's calling out this hypocrisy of trying to just gain that extra penny, trying to gain that extra dollar, trying to become a little bit more wealthy and affluent at the expense of other human beings. At the expense of saying that person isn't worth being called a person. And they turn aside, verse 7, the way of the afflicted. When I was looking at this, my mind was, my thoughts were taken to Matthew 5, where Jesus is really laying out 
what a Christian, like what someone who's blessed looks like, what a, what a Christian like should really entail. Um, what, is, what is valuable in God's economy? And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. These kind of people are the ones who are vulnerable to be taken advantage of. The people that are afflicted, the people that are trying to do good, the people that are trying to do right, this culture in Israel is saying, you can't, I don't, we're not allowing you to walk the right road. We're going to turn you and force you to deviate from righteousness. We are going to steamroll you and steal your stuff and not give you what it's worth. We're going to afflict you and turn you aside from your way. God calls out these people for being completely opposite of how they are supposed to act. They're forcing people to walk perversely, and they're not allowing, they're threatening, they're forcing, maybe they're jailing people who want to pursue truth. I read uh, Matthew Henry's commentary the other morning just going through it, and one thing that he said in this is, I thought, really powerful. He said, the more patiently that men bear the injuries that are done to them, the greater is the sin of those that injure them, and the more occasion that they have to expect that God will give them redress and take vengeance for them. These people in these first four lines or these first four statements are really people who have a true heart or that God would say are the blessed. And they're being taken advantage of and God's calling it out. And it's to God that they are committing themselves. That God would be the one they're crying out to and expect that he is going to take the vengeance for them. So these are a lot of injustices that take place. And in a culture where injustice is... The, the norm, we then see the sexual immorality that takes place along with it. The second half of verse 7 here, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. This can simply be, um, well, it's, God's calling it out as disgusting, um, but it could be temple prostitution, um, which was a common thing in antiquity. But more of what I read, it was more so specifically the cases of incest. Um, this is the kind of situation when in Genesis 35, I believe, when the son of Israel went in and slept with Israel's, or Jacob, specifically that guy, slept with his concubine and then is punished later on for it. He slept with someone that his father had as a wife or a concubine. Um, this is the same kind of situation when David was removed from the city of Jerusalem by Absalom, his son. And the counselors came to him and they said, do you really want to disgrace your father? And he's like, yeah, I want to disgrace my father. He said, go sleep with his concubines. And so David went, or I'm sorry, Absalom went and took his concubines on like the, 
the rooftop so all the people could see him absolutely defile his father. Like that's the kind of situation that's taking place here. And it doesn't just end in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, the people of Corinth are actually celebrating that this man in Corinth has his father's wife that he's, having, he's married to or in a relationship with his father's wife. Not his mother, but his stepmother. And Paul is calling him out and saying, you guys are celebrating this. This is so disgusting. It's not even named among the heathen. But what is seen as so abhorrent is just going to be the next letter that we see added to LGBTQI. Or the one that I was listening to um, on a TED Talk. I just caught it and I couldn't listen to all of it. But that uh, the current one that they're trying to add to it is um, child, uh, pedophilia. And that pedophilia should be added to. So if, you, if you're catching on, there's a lot of correlations between our culture <laughs> and the culture that we're reading about. Things that are being added to, the immorality, the injustice, these different things. This is what God is saying. This is what you're doing, and it's disgusting to him. And he continues on. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So in the Old Testament, if someone needed to borrow an ox, they would say, hey, can I borrow your ox? Here is my cloak. And they would say, take my coat. This is what keeps me warm at night. I'm going to borrow your ox and I'm going to go plow my field. And the way that God set it up is, hey, yeah, take his cloak. That, that gives him a reason to want to come back. And hold on to that cloak while he goes and uses whatever it is that you're, he borrowed. But if he doesn't return it that night, make sure he gets his cloak back before the night. So he can be warm. And then the next morning, go get it again until he brings back his his ox. Like there's just something there, but they're not giving back the cloak. They are going into the temple and they're sleeping comfortably with it. So these, this culture that's causing this injustice and the unrighteousness is taking comfort in the way that they are afflicting people. They lay themselves down beside every altar Next uh, couple weeks, we're going to see how Israel wasn't just worshiping Yahweh or Elohim. They were worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and these other heathen gods. Um, So there's altars everywhere, but specifically the golden calves that are in the north and the south of Israel, the northern kingdom. They're going to these altars. And to compound their sin, they're doing it in the name of God Almighty. So if you look here at the end of verse 8, in the house of their God, they drink wine, the wine of those who have been fined. So they're taking comfort, they're taking pleasure, they're taking uh, of a blessing, which is wine in the Old Testament, the blessing of wine, and they're saying God Almighty is honored as we worship at this golden calf, as we sleep Uh, with people we shouldn't be sleeping with, as we are laying in garments that should have been given back, as we're treating people wrongly. They're saying God is honored. We're blessed. The reason why I say they're honoring God, in the ESV, this word God is capitalized. 
in the King James, I think in the NIV and several other translations, it's, it's a lowercase g. And when I was looking at them, I'm like, well, which is it? Is it their God, like some other God they're worshiping? But when you go look at what the original word there, it's Elohim. It is the name of God that they are saying they're worshiping. They say, I trust in God Almighty, or I trust in his provisions. I trust in Yahweh and the God of Israel. But God says, this is your God. They lay themselves down beside their God Almighty. It's not me, but they think that they're worshiping God Almighty. Does the disgustingness of what this culture is doing, is that coming through? Like, is that making sense? They are more, um, their sin is perverse. Their sin is grotesque. And they compound the sin by bringing the name of God Almighty into it. They're making God a partner in their sin. The other nations that didn't know God, they might have been getting called out for similar things, but their sin was lessened because they were doing it to Baal or Ashtaroth. But Israel, God's holy people, are saying, no, we're doing this in the name of God. These people have a knowledge of God, but they don't really know him. So then God says, this is what, I'm, I'm bringing all this against you. This is what you're doing. And God wants to show them, this is what I did. And he does that by, by bringing back some historical memory to him. He goes, do you remember when you guys were crying out, oh Israel? Do you remember when you were in Egypt and you were being afflicted? Do you remember when you were being treated um, unjustly by the Egyptians? Do you remember when you were being uh, robbed and stolen from and you were captives in the land of Israel or in the land of Egypt? Do you remember that, Israel? He says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God hearkens them back in memory to when they were the ones being afflicted. They were the ones that were being unjustly treated. And he starts off with the Amorite. The Amorites were those that lived in the, in the place that Israel lived now or in what is modern day Israel. Um, the Amorites were giants in the land when they were going and scouting out the land. They're like, we're grasshoppers in comparison to these guys. They're huge. They are like the height of a cedar tree, and they're as strong as oaks. That's what God said they were. And that was truly what they were. They were these mighty, massive, huge people. But in Genesis 15, when God was promising to Abraham that land, he says, your, your children are going to live in this land. But not yet. He says, your children, God tells Abraham, your children are going to be slaves in Egypt. They're going to be slaves for 400 years. And in that fourth generation, I'm going to bring them out. And the reason why is because the sin of the Amorites wasn't fully complete. So God is playing this back and forth. He says, this is what you're doing. This is where, do you remember where I brought you from? The same kind of injustice the reason why I brought you or you had that that time was so that these people who were being unjust 
could finish their sins so I could fully destroy them. And that's what he did. He destroyed not just the, the height of that tree, not just the, like what you could see of the Amorites, but he's destroyed their roots completely. Think of like a lightning storm that goes through. I don't, um, one thing I loved about working uh, in fire departments is you get these lightning storms, and it's typically not that same day that you go out and fight a wildfire. It's like a week later when that tree that got struck, it's burning in its roots, and the, the tree's roots are, are burning up for like a week until they get out to like some other bush, and they go, and they start a wildfire out in the middle of nowhere. And that's when a week later, these wildland crews are like going out and fighting these little, these little startups because of the lightning strikes a week before. Uh, he's, and it so completely destroys the tree. Um, and that's what God is saying he did. He not just took them down like a stump, but he destroyed the very roots of them. He just burned all the way out through them and completely removed the Amorites because their sin was complete. And then he says, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. God is saying, I have treated you with such a love and a care, and you are repaying that by being abhorrent to me. And then verse 11, verse 11 he pulls out this one other thing that um, just rocked me when I, when I came across it this week. He said, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Um, a, a prophet was the one, like Amos is a prophet, or we speak of you know, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, and the minor prophets, these people that God called out and said, I need you to go say my words to these people. God is saying, I gave you people who are coming to speak my word to you. I raised up some of your sons for prophets. Um, in a culture, or in, a, in our culture, in any culture, uh, the best institution, the most blessing, blessed institution in any culture, the most powerful institution in any culture is the church of God Almighty, is the presence of God Almighty. In a culture, in a town, I'm going to bring it right here into the Hood River Valley and Parkdale and Odell and Hood River proper, the best blessing in this town isn't the beautiful view that we have. It isn't the fruit that we have. It is the Christians that walk in it. And it is the church that's in it. We are God's special blessing to this community. And throughout the state of Oregon, the best blessing in this town isn't the, the heights of government or the heights of industry or any of that. It is the church within this state. The church is God's most, is, is the most powerful entity on earth because the Spirit of God lives in the church and in his people. And God is all powerful. 
So if the all-powerful God is living in his people, then those people have the all-powerful, all-knowing, magnificent, holy, righteous God walking around town. We are the blessing. And God says here, I gave you the most powerful blessing. Those ones, those prophets who would speak your word to the people. I just want to ask, is that how we view ourselves when we're waiting at the taco truck to get our lunch? Um, I saw an old friend at the, um, up in Parkdale at the um, taco truck there, and, and I wanted, I was trying, like, how do I, how do I bring up to, to Matt this? How do I engage this man in, in a real conversation and I was, I was trying, and I was thinking about it, and then he was gone. I'm like, oh, I missed my chance again. Like, how did, yeah, we talked about his farm, but we didn't, get to, we didn't get to Christ. We didn't get to that blessing. And I'm like, man, God, I want to be that blessing that when I'm at the taco truck, these people around me are being blessed because I'm talking the words of God to them. I'm sharing with them the hope of eternity. I'm sharing with them that, Jesus has forgiven them of their sins. Like, that's, that's what I want to do, and that's what God has called us to do, to go out and to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey all things that he's commanded. Like, that's our charge. Is that how we really see ourselves? God has given Israel, the prophets, he's given the Hood River Valley, Pillar Bible Fellowship, he's given the Hood River Valley, the CMA. He's given the Hood River Valley the church. Is that how we see ourselves? That's, and that's just the question on that. But the one that really stirred my heart this week um, is that he follows that up and he says, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Um, in Numbers chapter 6, God gives this, uh, this law, this detail about people who want to be devoted to him. And he says it's either men or women. In our passage here, he specifically says young men. But in number six, it's men or women who want to consecrate their lives for a specific period of time, holy to the Lord. And they would take a Nazarite vow. When I think of Nazarites, my mind immediately goes to Samson who didn't have a choice necessarily to be a Nazarite. God told his parents he's going to be a Nazarite. And Samson kind of, sort of, not really walked that out through his life. Um, did some amazing things, but, but throughout his life just kind of kept removing the details of that vow. Um, the Nazarites wouldn't drink wine. They wouldn't drink anything of grapes. They wouldn't eat the grapes. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't even eat the the seed or the, the flesh, the outer covering of a grape. Like they, they just had to totally leave grapes alone. In their time, grapes and wine, that was a blessing. But God is saying, if you want to consecrate yourself to me, he says, take something that's lawful, take something that's good, and just set it aside for a time. Just if it's just kind of a distraction, lay it aside. He'd also say there's no um, harder alcohol. Uh, they wouldn't cut their hair so that their vow would be visible to those that are around them. And I'm waiting for the day that a rice child makes a Nazarite vow for like a year because these guys are going to walk around with locks and it's going to be great. Um, 
They wouldn't cut their hair, and they wouldn't touch a dead body. Um, even if their father died, or their mother died, or their son died, they, the Nazarite would be the, 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 the close family member would be the ones to take care of it. But in this vow, God is saying, in that instance, your oath to me is more important than burying your father or burying your mother or your child or your friend. Like, don't touch the dead body. Um, kind of some strange, some strange details that God says, like, these, these things, don't do these. But people would do them. And people would consecrate themselves to the Lord um, wholeheartedly and intentionally and for a period of time, maybe a year or two years or a month. Um, but just as prophets, or as we, we can take it, the church, just as prophets were a blessing to the people of Israel, the Nazarites that God raised up, these young men, some of your young men for Nazarites, these Nazarites are a particular blessing to that culture, to that people. Um, and I'm, I'm going to ask, um, my heart is really, really stirred for the under-20s in our church. My heart is really drawn to you young men and women uh, from those that are leaving the house, going to college, to the ones that are on their way and still in the womb. Like, I just have this desire to see, um, to see you young men and women walk with God in such a consecrated way that it is an obvious, powerful blessing to our community, to your families, to the culture at large. And as Seth was even praying earlier that, um, I'm not even going to quote you right. <laughs> I was going to quote you, but um, that there would just be such a, a vitality and health and, and power in our youth. Um, that I really want to ask, if you're under 20, would you stand up for a minute? I know this is kind of awkward, right? I'm going to just ask, if you're under 20, would you stand up for a minute? Um, and I'm going to ask parents and those that are sitting around, I'm going to ask you to pray with me for these youth. Based on this little piece that God says that Nazarites are a blessing. Um, so can we pray for the youth? And I'm going, to, um, I'm going to ask youth that you guys would just quiet your hearts and minds. Don't, don't worry about whether the person behind you is, is staring at your back or anything like that. Just... Just take a moment and open your heart up to the Lord. Just, God, whatever you want to say, just take a minute. So can we pray for these young men and women for a minute? Just for a minute. Um, God, you are so good to us that you... You tell us that being drawn to you is the most blessed thing that could ever happen. Jesus, you chose um, apostles. You chose people that they might be with you, your word says. You call us into relationship with you. 
And I am asking God that, that these young men and women, that these children, God, that they would be so incredibly, profoundly blessed by the God of all creation. I pray, God, that like Jacob, they would wrestle with you and not stop and not let go of you until you bless them. I pray that you would draw them so close to you that they would be able to say, I know God. Not that they can say, I know a lot of things about God, but that they would say, I know God Almighty, the God of gods. I know him, and he is here with me now, and he lives within me. I pray that these young men and these young women would be on fire for you, God. I pray that there would be a power seen within this community by you calling out youth to consecrate themselves to you intentionally for not just a day, not just for a week, but for their entire lives. That they would say, I'm going to let go of something that is good. Maybe that is Maybe that's a drink like a juice. Maybe that's soda pop. Maybe that is television. Maybe that is a video game. They're just going to say, this is lawful, but it's not helping me right now. I pray, God, that they would have a desire to let go of something, to seek you more earnestly, that they might be able to share with their friends, like, no, I don't play video games because I'm under a vow before God. I don't, I don't drink, I don't want a soda pop, thanks. I'm under a vow before my God. And that, God, you would be saving their friends, you would be saving their acquaintances, that, God, your name would go out from the youth being devoted to you. And, God, I pray that one, two, maybe all of these young men and women would, would hear your still calm, gentle voice bidding you, bidding them to come with you. God, please bless them. Please bless them with the greatest blessing of all creation, and that is your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just encourage you, if Young men, women, you can sit down. If there is any unction, if there is any draw in you to pursue God a little more intentionally, that you just ask him to build it. Like, ask, you, can, you can ask God to give you desire. I don't know if that's ever, like, something that you pray. Like, maybe you just kind of feel cold. You can say, God, I know because I've heard it my whole life or I've read it in your Bible that you are the best thing in my life, would you give me the desire to, to walk that out? You can pray for God for desire. You can pray for God for the desire to have the desire. Like you can just, the most base prayers, you can pray and ask and encourage one another. So God gave his people, Nazarites, but the people, verse 12, this was their response to God's blessing. They made the Nazarite drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy or prophesy. 
the people who were supposed to be God's called out, redeemed, holy of the Lord people said, we're going to either trick these young men, we're going we're gonna to sneak in a little grape seed into their drink and be like, ha ha, you drank you drink, uh, drink some grapes. They, they were tricking them out of their vow or they were full on saying, you cannot walk this out. You cannot tell us truth. Church, we are being told we can't speak truth in our culture. We can't tell what God says is true. It's really, really similar. That's what's taking place here. They're saying, don't prophesy. Don't tell us what God says that's antiquated. Don't tell us what is being, uh, what the judgment is going to be. They don't, we don't believe it. The, the culture is saying this to us. Are we willing to get fined to honor God? Are we willing to be rejected by our peers to honor God? Like these people were fighting against the very blessings of God. Let's, let's be those blessings and, and stand in it. The Israel's sin is abhorrent. This is what God did in the past. This is what God gave them. This is what the people chose to do. So finally here in our text, verses 13 through 16, God says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what God will do. And I've never heard this passage on a positive, encouraging, K-love snippet of hope. Behold, I will press you down into your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. What God is going to do is he's going to allow the sin of Israel to just crush themselves Think of in the fall when you're raking leaves and you make this great big pile of leaves, right? Dads and your kids come and they jump on it. And you have this really light, fluffy pile of leaves that you can just kind of put on the tarp. But your kids come on and they squish it. And before you know it, like this huge five-foot-high pile is down to like six inches. And now it's heavy and it's crushed and it's a lot more work to get out, right? That's what God's saying. Like that big pile of leaves or sheaves, like it's going to just get pressed down. This is you. You're big and puffed up, O Israel, but I'm going to just press you down because of your sin. And those things that you think are good right now, Israel's army at this time was taking over territory. They were conquering. They were expanding a little bit. They had a strong military. They had a good economy. They had a stable government. These types of things that were good, that they were like, ah, God's blessing us. We're worshiping God Almighty, and he's he's blessing us. He says, those things, they're not going to stand. I'm going to press you down. Flight. The one who's, who's fast, he won't be able to run. The strong will not have his strength. The mighty can't save his life. The archers, the riflemen, they won't even be able to get up. The one who rides the horse, the cavalry, they're not going to be able to stand. They're not going to be able to save your life. 
and the stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked. So like the mighty warriors of Israel were going to be stripped of their clothes and they're going to be running away from the battle screaming. Like, is that not humiliating? Um, God is calling out his people and he's warning and he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And 40 years later, he did it. Assyria, who had been battling and ta- like picking on all of these center of the earth uh, peoples, had a time of recession. So that's why Israel was prospering is because Assyria had backed off. But 40 years later, God allowed Syria to come down and so utterly destroy the 10 tribes of Israel that they drove them away with fish hooks in their mouths and naked back to Assyria. They so utterly destroyed the northern 10 tribes 40 years later. This is a hard little passage to be like, great, culture is terrible. We're having persecution as people who want to be righteous. What do we do? What do we do? And the first thing that I want to start with is, I heard this quote a while back, it really stuck with me, is that we are all one terrible decision from ruining our lives and every life of the people that we love. Someone, I don't remember who said it to me, but it just so rung true. Each and every one of us as Christians are one terrible decision away from ruining our lives or the lives of everybody we love. The fall, the, the walking away, the, the, the so grotesque sin is always around us. There is nothing new under the sun. The, the people of Israel here, they weren't letting people, they were devaluing human life. They had slavery going on. We still have human trafficking. It's slavery. It's just called human trafficking. They devalued human life by selling people for sandals. We have abortion, genocide, and doctor-assisted suicide. We just say, ah, the life doesn't really matter. They trampled the head of the poor into the ground. We have Black Friday like chaos where people every year are injured and trampled on to get a killer deal. So 3,000 years later, we still have these same problems that the people of Israel are being called out here with. Do we have a problem in our society with justice and righteousness? Yeah. And it's actually really prevalent in the news that there is a problem. Um, But the problem isn't just the word justice that's being redefined in our culture. The problem is a biblical righteousness. And that's where, the, that's where the change can and must be pursued, is in the culture being changed over for righteousness sake, for the culture being drawn to God Almighty. We're left with this message. These last four verses would almost say, and as we go through Amos, we're going to see that it is so much like woe, destruction, and this is a hard book all the way up until like the last like few verses. There's so little hope until those last few verses um, of like positive and encouraging words. Um, These last four verses really leave us with like there is no salvation 
outside of the Lord. There's nothing else worth living for outside of the Lord. There is no other thing that can save us. No government reform, no like, no political thing that is trying to be pushed for. I can't even keep up with them. None of this stuff is going to work unless righteousness is pursued in the hearts of people. And uh, I think the best thing that we can look in this passage at and go, how does that happen? Is if you look back at verse 6, it says that because they sell the righteous for silver. And the morning that I started really studying this, I read through the last few chapters of Matthew 20, uh, of Matthew's gospel, and Jesus is the one that is really being pointed to in verse 6. Jesus was standing before Pilate, and this little verse came up that I go, I've always gone, why is that there? Why would God record that Pilate's wife came to him while Jesus was on standing before him and said, have nothing to do with that what? Does anybody remember? Righteous man. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. And the way that Jesus got to stand before Pilate was that he was sold by a hypocrite for silver. The way, the way that our culture can be impacted is to take it back to Jesus and what happened that day when the righteous was sold for silver. When Pilate hears this from his wife and he finishes up with Jesus, he stands before the crowd and he washes his hands and he says, my hands are clean of this man's blood. And it doesn't say all the Jews proclaimed. It says all the people proclaimed his blood, that's Jesus's, be on our heads and on the heads of our children. The day that the righteous was sold for silver was the day that the blood of Jesus got charged to all mankind. Like every man's sin, my sin was is on that day yelling crucify. Like the old supertone song goes, you know, my sins yelled crucify louder than the entire mob that day. Our hands are, everybody's hands are bloody because of Christ. All hands were bloody of Christ. Until the day that we raise our hands and we ask God, not just our hands, but to wash our entire bodies with the blood of Christ and to make us clean and to make us pure and to make us holy because we trust that his blood saves us from our sins. The, all the people brought the blood of Christ on them. For those people that cry out to him, he'll wash you with that blood. That is the message that we need to take from this today, that the church is so blessed with the blood of Christ and our culture so needs that blessing To tie this all back together, here we're wrapping up. Um, I want to take us, if everybody can turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Um, in chapter 2 and 3, God calls or speaks to these seven churches. And he says different things to each of them. There's patterns to it. Um, but he, 
Um, it's, pretty, it's very well received by all views on Revelation that these churches were real churches in the time and that the application of these seven churches is that we as a church and we as individuals can find ourselves falling into one of them majorly and a lot of them at any given point in our lives. Um, but he says one thing specific to the church of Laodicea. He calls out the church of Laodicea. And this, this to me sounds like that byway to hell that we started with or the people of Israel that we've just been looking at. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, he says, And to the church, the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's Jesus. I know your works, says Jesus. You are neither hot nor cold, or you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Very much the same as what we've read about in Amos. The same kind of situation. Verse 18, I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those I love or to whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I'm going to stop right there with this. We all, as Christians, we all sin. Jesus has forgiven us of our sin, but we still are called to a life of repentance. We all are capable of the most terrible atrocities before God. We can say we're doing things in the name of God that are abhorrent to him. And I think the warning of Amos chapter 2 to the church is that we must check our hearts and ask God where we are in our relationship with him today. And ask God to refine us and get us gold refined by fire. Um... Psalm 139 has, has just been playing over and over in my head all week as I've been studying where the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I believe the warning of Amos is that we must check our hearts and the encouragement is that we ask God to search us and to reveal in our hearts any sin that is keeping us from him, anything that is keeping us from him. It may not be sin. It may be a soda pop. If that is keeping him 
away from us. If, there, if there's just anything that we can say, I want to be closer to you, God. God is calling us through the book of Amos, and I believe this will continue to, to come out through this book. God is calling us to walk hot before him, to walk on fire before him for the youth, for children, for adults, to be in prayer, to be evangelizing, to be finding our absolute and utter enjoyment in the presence of God alone. I ask, church, that you consider this this week and pray that prayer asking God to search your heart for the purpose that we might walk in the way everlasting. Let's pursue God with passion, endurance, zeal, with truth, with justice, and righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray, we pray that you would search our hearts. And as we sang this morning, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. God, search our hearts. Give us, give us a, if it has to be a fiery trial, to produce gold in our lives. If it has to be difficulty that draws us near to you, God, whatever you must do, I pray, God, do it so that we might walk more closely before you. See if there's any wicked way in us and lead us, Lord, in the way everlasting. To the praise of your name, to the blessing of this community, We pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.